Welcome back. Um, we are now about to hear um, our second panel of the conference, which um, actually deals with something. I'm so sorry, my name is Anna Antic. <laughs> um, I'm a member of the Reluctant Internationalist uh, Project. Um, and um, this panel, I was going to say, deals with, uh, with something that our project has a particular interest in, although we don't don't really engage with imperialism and colonialism, but we're very interested in sort of darker sides of internationalism. Uh, and here, we have a particularly dark panel um, on, on <laughs> languages and language internationalism <laughs> as a weapon and, and, or, you know, in, in, in the context of, of like a sort of uh, and a more coercive uh, context of repression and, and imperialism. Um, and I'm, I'm very delighted to, to introduce to you to our colleagues from NYU. Um, to New York panel. Uh, and we're going to start with um, Alison Korinak, uh, who is a, um, a doctoral candidate, a PhD student uh, in, the history, in the history department at NYU, um, and whose dissertation is provisionally titled uh, Lost in Translation, Language and Colonial Rule in 19th Century French Algeria. And she's going to talk to us about that topic. Great. Yeah. Okay. Right, I'm just Quickly, you know, I want to say thank you so much to Bridget and the Reluctant Internationalists for welcoming me into your ranks this weekend, um, and apologize for taking you back both temporally to the 19th century um, and also to an ideologically sort of more closed-minded space than um, some of the more international efforts we've been talking about today. Um, but with that said, um, in June 1830, the Army of Africa set sail from the French port city of Toulon to undertake what we now call the conquest of Algiers, marking the beginning of French colonialism in Algeria. Included in that mission was a group of approximately three dozen interpreters and translators, the largest ever assembled for a French military expedition. The haphazard recruitment of this new entrepreneuriat, as I call it, uh, reflected a general hastiness to prepare for the entire expedition. Um, the prevailing historiographical consensus is that by late spring 1830, the French king Charles X was feeling politically vulnerable and ordered this invasion as a way to distract from domestic weaknesses. Um, in this way, it was not so much part of a coherent imperial policy as it was a knee-jerk reaction to a difficult situation. Um, however, in 1830, the most accessible historical point of reference would have still been the glory days of Napoleonic France. And indeed, many of the recruits latched onto this image, um, particularly his three-year-long Egypt expedition from 1798 to 1801. He had taken along on that trip a group of Orientalists, Egyptologists, distinguished philologists, and among other intellectuals. And so when one talked about interpretation work in the first half of the 19th century, that is generally what it had meant. To be an interpreter was to be part of an elite and erudite mission whose vague but collective task was to know and thus conquer the other. Um, as one of them put it, interpreters are the soul of wit. They are trust incarnated. They are envoys who face danger head on in order to forestall it. Um, so they really thought quite highly of themselves. Um, <laughs> that much is clear. Um, but I hope to show today how this fixation on Napoleonic grandeur, even in the face of a far different socio-political terrain in Algeria, crippled the Army of Africa's interpreter corps. Um, through a series of personnel and staffing decisions that favored old regime values despite their incompatibility with contemporary needs, the French leadership virtually ensured that its interpretariat would remain understaffed and unreliable. These earliest recruitment decisions would have a very long legacy. So I want to consider three key moments in this early development of the Imperial Interpreter Corps. Um, its formation in 1830, its disintegration over that following decade, and then one attempt at revitalization in the mid-1840s. 
Um, for reasons related to the structure of the French colonial archive, I'm focused principally on military recruitment rather than their civil administration counterparts. Still, my focus is less on the battlefield and more on the difficult process of shoring up French control through the articulation of multilingual administrative apparatuses for this new context. Um, and you know, in thinking through all of this, I kept coming back to Bourdieu, who among others has talked about you know, the construction of the state, he writes, is accompanied by the construction of a sort of common historical transcendental imminent to all its subjects. That transcendental produces in time a nation, um, a body with a robust bureaucratic culture to match that eventually becomes self-reproducing. What we see in the conquest of Algiers, and especially in the incoherent interpreter core that it produced, is how difficult it can be to export these kinds of cultural and bureaucratic norms. In its mundane incompatibility with ideals of a Napoleonic splendor, daily translation work in the young colony of Algeria quickly revealed the limits of French hegemony. So to start off, um, I'd like to provide you with a brief snapshot of the initial interpreter corps. Um, although the conquest of 1830 marked the first creation of a full-time corps as a discrete unit within the French army, France benefited from a much longer tradition of diplomatic and scholarly missions to the Middle East. The first expeditionary force reflected these traditions, composed as it was of three principal types of linguistic intermediaries. There were members of the French diplomatic corps who had served as representatives in Ottoman Syria, and occasionally their offspring who had been raised there. Um, native Syrians and Egyptians who served alongside Napoleon Bonaparte in that Egypt expedition, um, and later became Mamluks in his imperial guard back in France. And finally, career intellectuals, including young students from the Royal School for Oriental Languages and members of a Europe-wide Asiatic society. Um, a few data points just to help you picture them. Uh, the youngest in the group, the son of a French diplomat, was a mere 16 years old, while the oldest, a retired Mamluk, was pushing 65. Some had spent decades conversing in Turkish and Arabic dialects in the Levant, while others had trained exclusively on written texts in royal libraries. Many of the aging members came out of retirement specifically for this conquest, while the youngest were still struggling to make sense of their future career prospects. They were of Roman Catholic, Syrian Maronite, Muslim, and Jewish faiths. The group varied widely then in age, nationality, religious creed, education, language skills, and goals for the mission. What they shared, however, was a demonstrated devotion to serving the French state, newly minted professional ties, a uniform, and a sense of their own importance. That image of a corps rich in solidarity and bravely representing France abroad um, is certainly on par with how they wish to portray themselves. Uh, most of what we know about this earliest interpreter corps comes from an institutional history published in 1876 by Laurent-Charles Ferraud, who was then interpreter to the governor general, basically the highest level you could get. Um, but importantly, his history, and indeed this image of the interpreter corps, falls short in one telling aspect. He covers in extensive detail all of the interpreters that he deems worthy of the title, but fails to acknowledge the many temporary, auxiliary, and unofficial interpreters who worked alongside them to keep the empire operable. On the eve of departure, for example, the French military leadership realized it was still well short of the 40-man strong and secretariat it had wanted, and scoured the port for any tradesmen who could fill the ranks. Mostly illiterate, these men had nonetheless become adept communicators in a Mediterranean pidgin language that we since termed the lingua franca. Mm -hmm. um, it was untaught and typically unwritten um, and could really only be lived, picked up through lived trade experience. 
As last-minute additions, these men met none of the standard criteria for admission and carried none of the letters of recommendation or accolades of their fellows. Still, their comfort in spoken language exchanges would prove invaluable upon arrival in Algiers. So for all its historical inaccuracy, Farod's work is nonetheless invaluable for understanding why a coherent interpretariat was so difficult to produce. Um, we have an ideal type, you know, a fanciful description of a highly corporatist, um, a coherent body that he wanted to belong to. This was his dream. Um, the reality, of course, was far messier. Um, little in these interpreters' former lives had prepared them for the mundanities of administrative correspondence that quickly filled their days. Um, for one example, um, here's how Thoreau describes events in 1832, so just two years after the conquest. He writes, the service was now in such a state that out of 21 interpreters, only one knew how to write in Arabic script. And since he could barely speak French, it was necessary for one or two other interpreters to translate the desired French into Arabic orally so that he could then write it down. In this way, even a banal letter required several days to complete. If the sole translator who could write in Arabic came down sick, everything stopped. And unfortunately, there was just as much correspondence to be completed in Arabic as there was in French." End quote. He uses this example to underscore the state of disarray among interpreters, um, but I also think it provides critical insight into how much the French leadership was underprepared for its task and also what a complicated task it was to be an interpreter. It required comfort in both written and spoken forms of at least two languages, not accounting for regional dialects. Um, and then also, you know, as they settle in, a certain amount of bureaucraties was also required to really fulfill the role. Um, and really what we see is how the, the leadership overestimated the importance of accolades and trustworthiness and these vague concepts of an old elite um, while underestimating the value of a good work ethic and legible handwriting. <laughs> Perhaps understandably then, the first iteration of the imperial interpretariat was painfully short-lived for a variety of reasons. Some died of battlefield wounds or in negotiations turned sour. A few felt their age and retired back to France. Um, several returned to their former roles as diplomatic envoys, preferring that life to the one they had in Algeria. And many more transitioned into upper level military roles or positions within the new civil administration. The new head of the judiciary, the first police lieutenant, the chief property manager, and the director of Algerian civil affairs were all taken from this original core. Um, all told, historians estimate that by the end of the first year, roughly 50% of the core had opted out of that service. Um, many expressed dissatisfaction with the unfamiliar climes of Algeria and the daily drudgery. Um, and I would add, the records from the earliest months of the conquest suggest financial concerns also played a role. The Army of Africa had never bothered to budget for a full-time interpreter corps. Um, we see letters in 1830 and 1831 from even the most distinguished members um, chronicling their repeated requests for back payment of salaries, as well as reimbursement for travel fees and other expenses that they had been promised payment for in their original recruitment letters. And even when the money was finally allocated, it came from a mixture of emergency funds and specially levied taxes, neither of which suggests that legislators were taking a long view of this occupation. Indeed, officers appear to have been capable of simultaneously benefiting from the daily aid of interpreters, guides, and other intermediaries, while consistently understating their importance and undercutting their value. 
Recruitment was thus always a struggle, in part because interpreters were overworked and underpaid, and also because plenty of other positions in the colony and back home offered richer opportunity for career advancement. The majority of those who could leave the interpretariat did. Um, indeed, ministerial correspondence shows how officials repeatedly identified shortcomings in the core and refused to adequately address them. Efforts at reform were partial and quickly abandoned. The vice consul to Tangier in Morocco, for example, was brought in as a head interpreter, a new position in 1832, in order to survey and educate the corps. But he was sent away less than a year later as part of budget cuts. Um, <laughs> the complicated situation of pseudo-colonization really you know, created further confusion for those who remained. The Ottoman ruling class had been expelled, yet the new monarchy in place in France was waffling on how fully to invest in its new possessions. Up until 1834, it was not at all clear that France intended to maintain any presence in Africa. And for years after that, metropolitan legislators hesitated to fully fund the colony. At the same time, subsequent expeditionary missions to Oran, Bougie, Bonne, Constantine stretched the interpreter corps beyond its limits. The only way to adequately supply both military and civil administration with the linguistic intermediaries that they needed was to formally incorporate a group of heretofore informal indigenous interpreters. This was a key test for the nascent administration. How could it incorporate new members into the interpreter corps without betraying the trust and expectations of those who had faithfully served it thus far? Um, and the answer was not very well. Um, while the interpretariat clearly suffered from external pressures, it was equally beleaguered by internal cleavages resulting from the influx of these new members. The colonizing French and native Algerian classes of intermediaries butted heads as they jockeyed for positions of power within the new order. And their disdain for one another is on clear display. Um, Hamid Bouderba, who had been sent to the front lines to negotiate on behalf of the Algerian day and who remained an integral member of this transitionary team, wrote a scathing critique of his colleagues in 1834, heavily criticizing some of the same interpreters so lauded by the French leadership. Um, Zakar, he wrote, very bad interpreter. Saint-Port, even worse. <laughs> Faron, the worst of all, who doesn't know the Algerian dialect. Um, a few years later, you know, obviously not in direct response, but Zakar and Faron, two of them mentioned, along with a group of other highest ranking interpreters, came together to submit an equally scathing critique of indigenous, indigenous interpreters whose personal misconduct made them unfit for the title. Their final prescription to rejuvenate the Corps is no doubt extreme. They demand the immediate removal of all native Algerian interpreters from the ranks and only hire young, well-educated Frenchmen. Uh, you know, that's a major turn inward, even from this earliest Corps. We just see a total uh, disregard for other experiences and they're really focusing in on the French experience in Algeria. Um, that was a step too far. There's no way the, the administration could have run on just those few people. But the radical nature of such a claim certainly underscores their dissatisfaction with the status quo. Um, it can be difficult to sift through these partisan statements and determine who was leveling a legitimate complaint about his colleague or who have, may have been exaggerating in hopes of dealing a fatal blow to the career prospects of an adversary. Historian Alain Misaudi has homed in on political factions and the struggle for control in Algiers as an explanatory tool for these critiques 
while Sabrina Dufourmont points to systemic anti-Semitism to make sense of the French interpreter's deep suspicion of indigenous intermediaries, many of whom came from the minority Jewish population, especially in this period. Um, but, and I have no doubt that personal grudges and prejudices played a role in these tensions, um, but I also want to offer up today the idea that these complaints are the natural growing pains of an admi imperial administration struggling to figure out its role. It seems plausible to me that an interpreter trained exclusively in the grammatical principles of the Arabic language without ever having spoken a word aloud might have struggled to participate in real-time negotiations, just as it seems reasonable that a Syrian like Joanie Farron might have indeed struggled to grasp an Algerian dialect that could vary widely from his own. It is equally likely that in its haste to staff a new administration and deal with near daily crises, the French army agreed in some instances to use untested and underqualified indigenous intermediaries in the spirit of making ends meet. So the blatant self-interest on display in these missives, I think still belies a real need to restructure the flagging interpreter corps. The author's anxieties about status and fiscal security also shine through. So a combination of personal grudges and a real economic need made debates over the future of the interpretariat both understandable and inevitable. Officials had for too long avoided the difficult work of acknowledging what a critical role interpreters would have to play in a growing colony, and then allocating the funds and other resources required to make that core as strong and vibrant as possible. While they dallied, their most valued and trusted advisors were deserting them. In 1845, the Governor General of Algeria at long last signed into decree a complete overhaul of the interpreter corps. It laid out two principal types of interpreter positions, a titular upper level and then an auxiliary lower level. And these were codified and their salary grades categorized. Uh, new candidates would enter at the lowest auxiliary level and then be promoted steadily through the ranks. After a minimum two years of hard work and good reviews at each level, the interpreter would be eligible for a promotion. Um, however, foreigners, and this is a legal category that at the time included native Algerians, were barred from attaining this upper titular tier. You know, they maxed out. And only native or naturalized French citizens had that right. The number of titular interpreter positions available at each level was also capped. In theory, this cap protected the integrity of the Corps and ensured that proper funding would always be available to pay its salaries, um, a welcome change. In reality, however, interpreters frequently stalled at these transition points, waiting for a promotion that could not come until a fellow interpreter retired, changed careers, resigned in disgrace, or suffered illness or injury that took him out of the workforce. Um, the number of auxiliary interpreters, on the other hand, was allowed to swell with perceived need, which only added to the number of people fighting against those upper limits. Um, as a final measure, and in a gesture toward meritocracy, a special examination committee was created in 1847 to uh, perform yearly reviews and a biennial exam of the entire interpreter corps. Um, these measures were a step in the right direction, but stopped short of engendering the deep corporatist sentiment that had characterized that original force. The decree set an important baseline for admission into the corps and provided guidance for how an interpreter might ingratiate himself to the administration. At the same time, the strict codification of interpreter advancement procedures underlined the bleak reality of their administrative role and set a clear ceiling on future gains. Moreover, it barred an entire category of them from sharing in the full wealth of the position. Um, 
any appeals to an open Napoleonic meritocratic society were really distant memory by then. Never before had the interpretariat been better organized and never before had it been less appealing. So just to uh, sum up here, uh, the conquest of Algiers in 1830 fundamentally altered the career prospects for a whole crew of French orientalists, philologists, dragmen, and tradesmen, drawing together an unprecedented number of bilingual functionaries in one place at the time. In the following decades, the French interpretariat involved from an elite expeditionary force to a ragtag band's very much making ends meet to a slowly professionalizing administrative staff. Uh, each transformation, though incomplete, revealed important realities about linguistic intermediaries and the linchpin role that they would continue to play in administering to a multilingual population. Um, Louis-Jacques Prenier had unusually clear insight into these transformations. As a distinguished Arabist who'd spent nearly 30 years as chair of Arabic language instruction in Algiers, he trained many of the new recruits and examined virtually all of them as a member of the aforementioned commission. In a letter to the Minister of Education written in 1846, he identified a paradox at the heart of the polyglot empire. Men of inferior Arabic language education, he wrote, have rapidly ascended the ranks of the Arab Bureau. Those who have achieved a higher, more robust knowledge of Arabic, on the other hand, are left to language in mediocre positions with mediocre pay. This, I believe, was the greatest legacy of the early interpreter corps in Algeria. Through a combination of formal edicts and informal cultural norms, the French leadership created a multilingual space in which learning Arabic was both the quickest and most obvious route to advancement, and if one went too far down that road, an even quicker way to a stalled career. Mm -hmm. They never solved the problem of recruitment, of convincing military men and migrants to the young colony that learning Arabic was worth the effort, or after that, of proving that work as an interpreter was the best way to put those skills to use. In letting go of their earlier visions of a conquest of an esteemed core that had inspired the first generation of interpreters, the new Algerian leadership failed to articulate a unifying vision for the generation they needed to fill those ranks. The result was an irregular interpreter core with an unreliable administration to match. Thank you. Um, thank you so much, Alison. Uh, and uh, we're just uh, now uh, slightly changing our focus geographically, but perhaps not so much in, in thematic terms, um, with uh, Justin Jackson, who is an assistant professor at NYU, as well as a faculty fellow in global histories, um, who is a historian of the US in the world, very topical, uh, and looks at the history of colonialism, neocolonialism, in particular in the Caribbean um, Sea in the Pacific Ocean, and his forthcoming book is titled The Work of Empire, the US Army and the Making of American Colonialism in Cuba and the Philippines, and I believe he'll be presenting materials from this book. Yeah. Thank you very much, and it's, 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 it's a pleasure to, to present a paper that I think does actually speak so directly uh, to, to an, uh, another panelist paper, which is sometimes I find my topic so esoteric that, that that's, quite, that's quite rare. So thank, thank you, and thank you, Anna Fichari and, and Bridget and the, the organizers. Uh, uh, it's a great opportunity uh, to participate in, in this research group, and, um, and I especially uh, uh, thankful for the opportunity because I can't stay for the whole conference, so I, I really welcome comments uh, and discussion afterwards. So in his most recent book, historian Vicente Raphael um, explores the politics of war and translation in the American empire, both present and past, ranging in time and space from the Spanish and US colonial eras 
in the Philippines to today's interventions in Iraq and Afghanistan, his essays deconstruct in, in really a relentlessly dialectical fashion uh, the semiotics of insurgency and counterinsurgency. Uh, he applies Emily Apter's reading of translation as a kind of language war in its own right, suggesting that Americans' attempts to instrumentalize and weaponize foreign languages and the foreigners speaking them in the pursuit of colonialism and counterinsurgency, he argues, have been disrupted constantly by the limits, the contradictions, and some of the uncertainties inherent in the act of translating itself. Uh, Raphael's insights are perhaps most interesting in his discussion of the conflicted and, and sometimes calamitous position of foreign interpreters employed by the US military today. Indispensable providing uh, linguistic local knowledge on which counterinsurgency and its multiple military, political, and sociocultural missions uh, depend, Iraqi and Afghani translators, according to Raphael, uh, represent simultaneously the irreducibly insurgent nature of embodied foreign subjects and the act of translation. Uh, as, their, as their ability or willingness to mediate between the speech of the occupiers and the, quote, occupied other becomes suspect, uh, so does their loyal, as does their loyalty to Americans, interpreters, according to him, become, quote, doubly positioned by structurally, uh, a structurally ambivalent status of what he calls constitutive ambiguity. Such a liminal condition reflects an insoluble social and ontological instability inherent to translation, one forever threatening to destabilize empire and counterinsurgency strategies that prioritize stability above all else. Um, for, for Raphael, however, translate, translation's never entirely separate from society. It's not just some kind of self-contained, self-referential language game confined, confined within an exclusively linguistic uh, space existing only in dialogue between speaker and listener, between one text and another. Um, to his credit, I think Raphael implies that the, the imperial interpreter uh, uh, and his or her mediating activity is subject to the sociological, the historical, and the material. As he examines imperial and colonial history and, and US-Philippine relations, he, he makes gestures to spatial Marxism and cultural anthropology. Uh, translation in US empire, he seems to argue, has always been a problem of changing relationships between empire, imperial power, everyday life, and local knowledge. He argues that, quote, the conversion of the local, the particular, and the everyday formed by ongoing relations between occupiers and occupied into weapons of war and pacification are central to US counterinsurgency techniques. Such strategies, in his words, require the daily colonization of the life world of both occupiers and the occupied. Um, however, I have to take a, a critical perspective here in some ways, because I think even as Raphael dis discusses US counterinsurgency, uh, having a set of protocols for what he calls expropriating foreign languages through interpreters, right, in, including so-called native interpreters, he overlooks one of the implications of this word expropriation, I think, uh, for an imperial history of, of, of interpreting. Uh, here I want to argue that the U.S. wars and occupations which made uh, the United States early 20th century empire in the Caribbean and the Pacific show how a history of imperial translation has involved not only the politics of language, but also, I think, fundamentally material and social and political problems of work and labor, right? Which I think your, your paper spoke to very well. Um, so the comparative history of, of US imperial wars, occupations, uh, and state building in Cuba and the Philippines, I argue, uh, uh, suggests three claims. One, interpreters in the US empire should be understood as only one of different, many different kinds of workers whose everyday activity 
and biopolitical power form part of the base and the superstructure of imperial power and its reproduction. Classified with guides, you know, who provided local geographic knowledge as a kind of intermediary um, uh, for the pre-modern pre, pre U.S. Army, right? Uh, not a modern U.S. Army. Uh, the Cuban and Filipino translator functioned as a kind of knowledge worker uh, for empire, I would say. To a significant degree, the U.S. Empire's formation was contingent on these interpreters' cooperation with or resistance to U.S. military and, and colonial administrative goals. Second, I would argue that translators' linguistic labor could never be detached entirely from these individuals or their embodied subjectivity. The Army's need to appropriate and expropriate local knowledge, which cohered and could only be accessed, especially early on, through the colonial subject, was a constitutive feature of what I call in my book manuscript the politics of everyday sovereignty, or the imperial politics of everyday sovereignty, that determined early 20th century US imperial formation. Uh, this politics, uh, constructed by competing and conflicting assertions of US, Cuban, and Philippine national sovereignty flowing downward from high politics and upward as a result of tense negotiations between Americans and colonial peoples, uh, including uh, their language, revolved uh, to, a to a certain degree, I think, around this kind of knowledge work. Um, and lastly, I would argue that Raphael's understanding of the inherently insurgent nature of language in what he calls the wars of translation actually implies more instability and resistance to US empire than the, than the, the historical record actually warrants, I think, um, as opposed to just theory. Um, as Raphael suggests, Cuban and Philippine interpreters employed by the army dur during these wars and occupations did inhabit a kind of liminal and often dangerous space between colonized peoples and American soldiers, right? Uh, American soldiers who often distrusted interpreters, native interpreters. But interpreters also used their labor for the army to earn more than just wages. Uh, they accumulated a, a degree of political power and social status in these colonies um, as the work of translation influenced uh, state formation under American sovereignty. And I think maybe there's a similar process at work there, kind of uh, upward bureaucratic mobility. So interpreters in their work was only one factor in, in really the most protean phase in the making of Americans' colonial knowledge. Before American officials rendered these uh, islands legible for rational modern administration through censuses or cadastral surveys, uh, and prior to harnessing a revolution in information technology, uh, which Al McCoy and others have, have shown us uh, happens in, in the Philippines with the creation of a modern surveillance state, the US Army just needed interpreters to even have a basic capacity to conquer populations and spaces right from the beginning. Um, uh, their, their work and its outcomes differed significantly, however, between Cuba and the Philippines uh, for kind of obvious reasons. In Cuba, during the Spanish-American War, and then there's two immediate occupations that followed uh, up till 1902 and the second from 1906 to 1909, uh, the work of translation, I argue, helped produce but also reflected kind of U.S. neocolonial hege hegemony over the fledgling uh, republic, including in language. Compared to the Philippines, which was really radically unfamiliar to Americans in 1898, Cuba was a known quantity. Uh, Americans' mission there that year and in, during the occupation benefited immensely from longstanding economic and social and cultural exchanges and ties between Cuba and the United States throughout the 19th century. Uh, thousands of Cubans, usually Creole planters and aspiring urban professionals, had traveled to North America for business, for leisure, for education, and they had returned to Cuba, not all of them, but many of them fluent and literate in English. So this kind of intercultural histoire, histoire croisée created a kind of communicative substructure 
between English and Spanish speakers that proved crucial to the Cuban Revolution of 1895 as nationalist exiles based in the U.S. launched and supported an insurrection from the U.S. Uh, beginning in 1895, three years later, as well as Cuban insurgents in the army started cooperating during the invasion of eastern Cuba. Um, before that campaign, a, a Kansas filibuster, a very colorful figure, Fred Funston, uh, had told the War Department in Washington that actually many Cuban Liberation Army officers knew Spanish and were speaking uh, sp Spanish to him, uh, uh, speaking Spanish and English to him while he was there uh, during the insurrection. Uh, and these Cubans included Calixto Garcia, who was the general commanding insurgents in eastern Cuba that the, that the U.S. Army worked with in 1898. So during the war, kind of gentlemanly English-speaking Cuban officers and American volunteers with origins in the American Southwest um, almost made interpreters unnecessary. Uh, and perhaps the exception were several Cuban exiles uh, who volunteered for the U.S. Army and then became critical to American generals during the operations there. Um, if Spanish-English translators were, were marginal during the war, however, they became essential to the U.S. military government that occupied Cuba afterwards. Uh, the vast majority of officers running the occupation knew little or no Spanish, obviously, right? Uh, and they required and employed hundreds, I mean, maybe thousands, there's just no numbers that are available to me, uh, of, of English-speaking Cubans as interpreters. Uh, translation, in a way, directed state formation because uh, the U.S. military government, first in Oriente, mandated that Cuban appointees to municipal and provincial civil government offices speak English. Uh, and this restricted effectively, I argue, uh, local political power and the patronage and parties that that generated uh, to educated Cubans. They were relatively wealthy whites, uh, Creoles who owned land or practiced professions. They'd usually learned English in the United States. Uh, or in business with the Americans. Um, and so they tended to sympathize, actually, with US policies, including uh, the possibility of annexation, right? Uh, trying to survive in an economy ruined by three years of war, elite and ordinary Cubans sought livelihoods and economic security through government jobs with, with the occupation, uh, including as positions as, as interpreters. Um, often insurgent veterans, these Cubans, um, were criticized by Americans, however, quite frequently for, for being what one individual called a kind of army of expectation. Uh, uh, they, they, they only looked out for themselves, they're only interested in money, they weren't actually interested in creating a, a viable independent nation, which is part of a larger kind of uh, imperial and, and racial discourse. Um, but for many Cubans after 1898, Americans in the U.S. represented modernity, right, in, in, in all of its uh, various dimensions, uh, including uh, the English language, which was associated with modernity. Um, uh, Americans and their businesses exerted more and more control and influence over Cuba's political and economic life after 1890, including through English language acquisition and training, right? But to move on to the Philippines, the political, military, and kind of sociolinguistic environment there was radically different, right? In the archipelago, uh, with, where a Catholic church kind of uh, dominated state bureaucracy, had only since the 1860s provided any Spanish language education at all to more than a handful of Indio elites, American Spanish skills really only went so far. A few of the volunteers from western states and territories in North America who made up the majority of the U.S. expedition to Manila in 1898 did speak some Spanish and they served as interpreters. But as Raphael points out, in most communities beyond Manila, only the principales, these local elites, uh, uh, spoke any Spanish at all and often even didn't even write Spanish. Um, in 1898, according to Raphael, about 5 to 7 percent of the, of the Philippine population were even fluent in Spanish, right? 
Um, so to wage counterinsurgency when war broke out with, with Filipino nationalists in 1899, Americans depended on a host of translators to communicate with a vast majority of Filipinos who knew no Spanish, right? In fact, only, maybe only two Americans in 1898 knew any native Philippine language, uh, which, is, which is just uh, extraordinary when you think about it. Um, so particularly vital here uh, were, were former Spanish soldiers, and Americans' uh, so-called native allies, including Americanista Filipino elites who were taking government positions, low-level low government positions. And these men were, were recruited to translate between Spanish and Tagalog, Iloco, Bicol, right, a kind of double layer of trans translation, as we heard before. Um, uh, they, were, they were often compelled to speak through, you know, a second group of interpreters, American troops who could do Spanish and English. Um, without them, in fact, kind of intelligence gathering, right, would have been impossible. Intelligence gathering, which is crucial to counterinsurgency warfare. Uh, there were 450, more than 450 garrisons throughout the Philippines, which has 7,000 islands, right? I mean, you can imagine, like, trying to wage a counterinsurgency without, without knowing native languages. It's, it was a difficult situation from the Army's perspective. So in the context of insurgency and counterinsurgency through Luzon and the Visayas in these years, and then intermittently in the Moro province that, that continued up till 1913, translators and their work did invite problems of trust and disloyalty, uh, as Raphael theorizes, as we kind of heard before here. With no one was this imperial military kind of dialectic between language and loyalty more pronounced than one individual, Teodoro Sandico. He was formerly a law student in Madrid, a radical nationalist who organized for revolution in 1898 and, and 1899 from within US-occupied Manila while working for the US provost marshal there in the city as their interpreter, right? I mean, this is a guy working for the, the, the American police inside the city. Uh, he even convinced the Americans to release uh, members of the Katapunan, which is the revolutionary society that had launched the 1896 revolt. Uh, <laughs> Uh, while he was organizing social clubs as the public and face of a covert kind of clandestine nationalist militia, which grew to 10,000 men and, and, and almost sparked an, uh, you know, an insurrection when the war broke out inside American lines. Uh, maybe for this reason, some native Filipinos could read, you know, really read interpreters' loyalties better than the Americans, uh, as some Filipinos refused to speak with the Americans through Sandico and other people, right? Uh, they didn't trust them. Um, uh, then there were more trustworthy individuals uh, like the Ilustrados, the national level kind of elites, uh, like Philip, Felipe Calderon, who was a, one of the authors of the Malolos Republic, the nationalist constitution in the Philippines. He helped the U.S. Army as an interpreter install friendly municipal governments all throughout Luzon um, in 1899. Um, Yet the working relations which Filipino interpreters forged with the army through their labor also, I would argue, cultivated ties uh, which translated into personal status and power and authority in the new colonial state over the long term, right? Not just the short term. Um, in the Philippines, uh, there's perhaps uh, the, 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 the even really untrustworthy interpreters found their way into civil and political office. I found evidence of some people who were jailed by the Americans or shown to be working for the insurgents. The Americans are so desperate for their help that eventually they find their way into political office. Um, uh, but interpreters' temporary alliances with the Americans did entail extraordinary risk, right? And we heard about that earlier as well. Translators were injured, they were killed in combat. More often they were just targeted for retaliation by, by guerrillas, right? I mean, they were, people understood they were important and so they were targeted a lot. Um, so if the imperial work of, of language 
potentially inf inflicted fatal personal costs on some Filipino interpreters, it also promised to many in those islands and in Cuba as well considerable benefits. The United States neo-colonial and colonial regimes in these islands and the, the work of local linguistic knowledge on which this formation, I would argue, partly rested, did at large reflect an imperial politics of claims, sometimes convergent at other times conflicting uh, to sovereignty, national sovereignty, rising out of struggles over Cubans and Filipinos' everyday life, including language. Thank you very much. Um, we have put a lot of time for discussion, and I'll, I'll, open, I'll open this for questions in, the, in a second. I just want to um, just say sort of a couple of brief things and, and perhaps um, ask a sort of initial question to start us off. Um, I was, there's so many, so many kind of overlapping themes, and, mm -hmm. and so that it seems that the papers are kind of approaching one of the same question from, from from different perspectives, from different perspectives. Um, and what really strikes me is that that kind of the 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 overarching importance of interpreters, translators, and the importance just in general for for even start, you know, for the colonial state to even start to think about the colonial project, right? Um, and also, as Justin so eloquently described, their their um, the, the dangerous and the liminal position and seditious position of interpreters is on one side, and then something that came across in, 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 in Alison's paper in particular that the messiness of the general disorganization and, and kind of moneylessness of this whole, uh, uh, of, of this of this entire operation, which really that, that contradict or seeming contradiction uh, strikes me very much, and and um, makes me wonder how the you know if, if you could if you could maybe comment on how the political state, how the colonial state. Um, envisions the political, but does it at all discuss the political role of these interpreters, um, the role in the civilizing mission, the role in the kind of winning, winning over the local elites, or, or not only elites, or when, when it comes to the, the, kind of the foreign, the, the translators that are coming from the metropole. Um, uh, is that a different kind of imperial or national citizenship? Right? And there, there seems to be that, again, uh, kind of contradiction between the indigenous translator, who's usually, who sort of seems to be universally not trusted for, for good reasons, but yet again, there's no other way. And then there's kind of the, the, the colonial interpreter, the, the French or the, the American uh, interpreter. What are the two? How are they different? Are they envisioned by the state? But are their political roles envisioned differently? Um, and what's the relationship between the two, if that makes sense? Yeah. Um, sure, I would say that's almost, it's a really interesting question, um, and we see very different mindsets from the interpreters themselves and from the state. So I think very much this initial core of interpreters, especially given their prior experience, really thought of themselves as not just this sort of, you know, translation machine where you give me words in one language and I spit them out in the other, but I am doing active interpretive work. I am giving you the larger message, the cultural underpinning, mm -hmm. all of that. And what we kind of see the state doing is saying, hold up, take a step back. Um, they start, you know, decrees explicitly say, you know, translators will translate this text as accurately, as literally, as clearly as possible. And if they take explicit, you know, leeway, they should have an asterisk explaining how they came to that wording. Um, when they, right, they um, sort of swear in as judicial interpreters, you see this in the 50s and 60s, a little after what I was discussing today, but up until that, they say, you know, I will translate everything as directly, as faithfully, as, you know, on point as possible. And so we see the state really taking that interpretive power in the more kind of touchy-feely sense of it away from interpreters, seeing them as 
much more of a machine to just facilitate this interaction and then we will make the decisions. And it really puts them in a sort of intermediary space that they get mm -hmm. stuck in. Yeah, that, that's a great question. Uh, um, uh, uh, I mean, just building off uh, your comments and themes of it, right? What Raphael points to is real. There's kind of a slipperiness to translation, right? It's always incomplete. It's always incorrect in some ways, right? Um, uh, and you do see that uh, uh, in terms of how um, Americans in the army, and that's the focus of my research, not civilians per se, how Americans in the army view both Cubans and Filipinos as, as, as generally incapable of providing, you know, fully complete, fully accurate translations. Uh, part of that is just kind of civilizational contempt. Part of that, particularly in the Philippines, is counterinsurgency, right? And, and, and there, there, are, there are not always very, you know, uh, from the American perspective, uh, uh, good motives uh, working uh, uh, for translators. At the larger levels, responding to your comments, um, uh, um, what's interesting to me is that you know this is this is the the US army even before world war 1 or, or much before world war 2 and there's really no there's no really official language training in the US army in a bureaucratic sense until until as far as i know the cold war the early cold war um, and it's actually as a result of these wars that people inside the army start as the army is developing the general staff and war colleges on the kind of Prussian system on the, on, on the impulse, it's as they're working through the problems of running occupations in Cuba and the Philippines that they start to talk about the need to really not trust locals, right, but to internally develop bureaucratically the army's own capacity to develop language specialists, or at least to train officers in languages which they can anticipate will come into use through US foreign policy and interventions. So it's, it's, it's the crucible of, of colonial war which actually forces the Americans to think about internalizing linguistic knowledge and local knowledge in a way that makes it more reliable, more trustworthy. Uh, um, uh, but it's not something that goes away either, right? Because they continue to rely on local intermediaries, not just for war, right, but for courts. Courts are really important. Constitution drafting, right? Correspondence with all kinds of local political leaders. Uh, uh, it, it continues to be a problem. Um, do, do you know? Mm -hmm. Thank, thank you both. It was absolutely fascinating. It was really nice to speak to each other. I, I want to follow up actually on Anna's question. So, and, and uh, Elsa, you partially addressed it, but I'd like to hear more. So, how do these interpreters mm -hmm. see themselves? Like, what do they think that they're doing there? And in case of, uh, <clears throat> especially if, uh, like, of, you know, Frenchmen or the, the imperial interpreters, mm -hmm. um, are they? kind of aware of the complexity of the task, of what it is that they're doing? Do they, do they actually think of themselves as only interested in language, or are they there to kind of represent the other culture and kind of do this kind of broader? Right, it's, it's a really hard thing to parse and get at. You know, um, most of the, it's rare to have an interpreter, especially from the time period I work with, kind of jotting down his notes and saying, this is, you know, right, there's nothing quite that, I would love it. Um, but we, what we do get is like we get Farrod's institutional history, um, which of course has a point of view. He wants to think of himself as a part of this elite force, as, as really making a difference, as being these incredibly influential people in the colony. Um, but it's really, you know, the voices we hear from are mostly people 
you know, it's when they're writing to request for a pay raise that they tell you how important their role is. It's always in the context of needing to make a claim for importance that we see them saying that. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I have other, you know, again, the bureaucrat's report of his interpreter, which is also, you know, skewed in its own way, will often talk about how lazy they are, about how they know they've got a salary and they can just walk in and do whatever. Or, right, they farm out all their work to the native, you know, secretary, they were called, basically. Um, so occasionally, you know, it was really just about a day job, um, you know, something to get pay and go home. It's really, you know, it's, it's certainly hard to generalize to what everybody was feeling. Um, you know, I personally really believe in bureaucrats as like overworked, underpaid people who are not like, like intensely concerned with embodying the state. You know, like they don't have these high thoughts. Many, you know, I'm not saying they cannot act in line with this sort of larger project, but that, that's certainly not the only thing that they're doing. And so some of it might be my interpretation, but really, you know, I see them just as frequently as they say, you know, I made a key, like I played a key role in this, you know, trial. I played a key role in drafting this legislation. I see them saying, I got coffee with my friend this afternoon. <laughs> and so, you know, it really, it, it varies. Oh, oh, yeah, I would just, it, I, the, I see a similar thing uh, uh, in, in terms of the, the, the evidentiary problem, right? Is that, strangely enough, I mean, these are highly literate people, right? Especially if they're doing written translations. And yet, in my case, there's almost no biographical mm -hmm. material to work with on these individuals. You have to read their intentions and their motives mm -hmm. through this perspective of the state okay. in a lot of ways. And their correspondence to the state, which is asking for more bureaucratic privilege right. and pay, right? So it's, 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 it's a difficult problem, I think, um, to, to get at uh, how they conceive of themselves. Um, thank you. A bit of a comment first. One of the questions. Um, I'm actually an interpreter by training. So Amazing. <laughs> I can absolutely confirm that interpreters and translators tend to have an inflated sense of self-importance. <laughs> <laughs> To, um, to put a little bit of context for my question, I found it very interesting to listen to your presentation and a lot of people in the room were laughing and I kept having this sense of, oh God, we're doing this again. Because um, a lot of my work in the past years is focused on interpreters working for humanitarian operations. Mm -hmm. And everything you were saying about there being you know, last minute recruitment of untrained people, the lack of budget, the sense of everything being organized in a bit of a haphazard, ad hoc, amateur fashion, mm -hmm. the conflicts between expat interpreters and locally recruited interpreters mm -hmm. is something that we really see today in humanitarian operations mm -hmm. a lot. Mm -hmm. um, so that has not changed. And also the fact that professionalization of interpreting usually entails a certain reduction in the degrees of freedom that interpreters have, both in the actual interpreted interaction and also in general. So that tends to attract different people to a job. So all the wannabe diplomats tend to drop out at the stage exactly. when they're told, you know, just say word for word with everybody else's mm -hmm. um, is saying. So what I was wondering about, one of the conclusions I've reached is that the reason this this continues is because clearly things are working, are somehow working the way they are. Mm -hmm. And it's very difficult to say what the price of you know, having amateur interpreters, etc., what the consequences are. It's very easy to say languages are important and we need good interpretation, but then 
for a humanitarian operation, they want to you know, have the numbers. And if they can decide between putting a doctor on the ground and putting a bilingual on the ground, they're going to put a doctor on the ground and he'll find his way somehow. Right. So what I'm wondering is, in your research, looking at the perspective of the state, have you found any indications of like negative consequences or caused by um, insufficient interpretation, instances that made them go like, maybe we should have put more funding into this, or did things seem to work just fine so no, that's a great question. Um, one of the enduring struggles of my research is that you know I see so much messiness on the ground and so many bad translations and so many absent interpreters. And yet the fact remains that the French remain in Algeria for 132 years, right? So something is happening, right? They're getting something done. And I think there are all sorts of negative consequences, but it's unclear how directly the state feels them. So there are cases where an interpreter has you know, put in the lease in French that it's for two years and put in the Arabic that it's indefinite. You know, they're basically purchasing the uh, property and then when they won't leave after two years, they get thrown in jail and get a massive fine whacked on them. And that one was actually overturned in appeals. So his freedom was, you know, that one was a case that worked. Um, but yeah, so I read all sorts of stories about individuals within the colony getting, you know, feeling the brunt of this inaccurate translation. Um, and I have to imagine that over time there is an erosion of trust. There is a, you know, people don't use interpreters. They find other routes. They, um, that there's a sort of separating out that happens from an administration that's trying to get closer to and better understand its popu population, sort of, you know, paradoxically pushing them away. Um, but no, as you said, somehow people always get by and they can hate their interpreter and use them anyway. They can catch somebody not doing his work and they'll move him to a different city because they say he has ruined trust here. So put him in a different province where he doesn't know anybody. It'll be fine. Um, you know, so I see a, a certain willingness to hold interpreters account accountable, but the bottom line, because the state I think isn't feeling any, they're not bearing the brunt of the miscommunications. It's falling on other, other people's shoulders. Uh, my question is to Justin. Um, I really appreciate how you kind of show different facets of the emergence of the kind of American century or the global American century. I'm curious if you can also frame it uh, as, as an inner American story in, in, a, in a long, long durée of American history. Is there some continuity between uh, the encounter or the policies of uh, American units uh, with the uh, Native Americans? I mean, also kind of you know attempts to understand the locals and also to, to control them, to, to expel them. So is there some longer story to tell about this? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think there's some continuities in the kind of politics of trust that, that interpreters are kind of cultural brokers or cultural intermediaries. Uh, that, I mean, that's obvious from North America's colonization by different, you know, European powers from the 1500s forward, right? That's, there's plenty of literature on that. Richard White's book on the Great Lakes region, for example, uh, uh, is, is a great text on that. Most immediately, what's interesting to me from the context of the late 19th century is that, uh, and there's not, not a, a lot written about this, but I think it's, it's very interesting uh, and paradoxical in, 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 in some ways, is that the U.S. military after the Civil War, during what we call the, the so-called Indian Wars, right, uh, uh, recruits 
uh, and formalizes as much as like this interpreter court recruits in a formal way what was once informal. In other words, they create what they call scout units. Uh, uh, it's up to 3,000 are authorized for a pretty penny-pinching federal bureaucracy right until the 20th century. Um, and these are mostly guides who are providing geographic knowledge. And it's really fascinating the way it's kind of, their knowledge is racialized in some ways. I mean, the way white American officers who deal with these, these guys uh, talk about them is that, oh, you know, they're Native Americans. They have a, they have a natural relationship to the land. And, and they just intuitively know the geography and all this kind of, of nonsense. Um, uh, uh, but, but there's something to it because the Americans keep on coming back to these scouts, right? And part of that is, is the, the work of translation. And there's actually, you know, the American empire, or whether you talk about it as a settler empire in North America or a colonial empire in the 20th century context, I'm sorry, it's just not as sophisticated as you Europeans' empires. It's, it's, it's not an Orientalist empire. They don't have a, a colonial knowledge apparatus, right? Uh, they're just not sophisticated. There are, there are a couple of, of individual officers who kind of dabble in anthropology on the fly, and, and some of them, like this guy, Hugh Scott, who's really fascinating, he ends up learning lots of Native American languages. Um, and then he goes to the Moro province, which is predominantly Muslim province, right, in the southern Philippines, and he learns all kinds of Moro dialects, right? But that's, that's not there. So there's some continuity, but I would say not, not something like you would say see in the French imperial context over the long term. My question is partly answered, actually, but I'm, I'm interested in the relationship between negotiation and interpretation. And the point at which the one diverges from the other. Um, those Indian scouts were, in many respects, negotiators rather than interpreters. And in the case of um, in the case of Algeria, at a certain point, then evidently people recognised there was a thing called interpretation um, that required a separate treatment. Um, this is not the first time, after all, that the French had come in contact with the linguistic other, to say the least. Um, that, that Napoleon simply talked to the Sphinx? Was that how it worked? <laughs> um, so, so what happened earlier than, than Algeria? You know, that's a great question that I don't have a really great <laughs> answer for. Um, you know, it's, they really just thought about language totally differently in these two encounters. Um, like I said, the first, the first official kind of uh, school to teach Oriental languages, um, the first one in Paris is in 1795. Before that, they have an older school in Constantinople, actually, and these are kind of their envoys. Um, and so they're mostly communicating with that kind of Eastern Mediterranean community where they have a few you know, Frenchmen, French citizens living full-time in Constantinople who can take part in these. Um, but it's also really, you know, what I see in those early expeditions is less of a sort of dominating, impose my Frenchness on you. You know, we talk of, about Algeria as being a bit unique in the sort of, once they decide to go all in, they really, you know, it's a different project. Whereas, you know, what I really see in the scholars, the philologists, the Orientalists who go to Egypt, for example, they are communicating with elite you know intellectuals in Egypt who have learned French and so there's a totally different right it's, it's I, I won't call it a fully egalitarian relationship but it's more of a knowledge exchange 
for what, what would have been called the interpreter corps at that time. You know, it's just a, they're not military members at that point. They're not, you know, they're, a, they're an external corps kind of doing its own thing alongside the military. But as for what the military is doing, it's a great question and certainly something I should look into. And, and I would say in, in the context of, say, like the Philippines, that's a great historical question because the, the, the status, the function, the political significance of the interpreter, the so-called native interpreter, right, changes over time. So they often actually go from a kind of negotiating position, which is highly liminal, which is highly precarious in the context of insurgency and counterinsurgency, to being formalized, put on the payroll. And once that happens, right, they go from being someone who's being manipulated in a way to someone who can manipulate the status and, and you know, liminal rights that they have as an, as an interpreter, right? But when the Americans first come in with these officials, right, who are maybe Spanish-speaking local elites, right, they're using them for very pragmatic purposes, like where are the insurgents, where are the weapons, you know, uh, how can you force your citizens to work, you know, 15 days on the roads for the, for the next couple of weeks so we can move supplies and, you know, maybe start trade or whatever, right? Um, uh, that's a negotiating kind of position, right? That changes over time to a more formalized structure as, as government. Yeah. Um, I've just got three very quick comments. Firstly, I do identify with your critique of Vicente Rafael, who I think reads back from portrayals and the coalition adventures in Iraq and Afghanistan, in a, in a, in relatively, it's possible to be relatively ahistorical. In, in, in a very sophisticated ways, but, but, but deeply ahistorical. But I did wonder, my second point really, whether um, both of you have looked at um, scholarship which comes largely from the interpreting fields. Um, people like Michael Cronin, for example, who's worked quite a lot on languages at war and argues that um, he sees a pattern, which I don't entirely agree with, of armies going in, and, and he calls it heteronymous. So they, they grab anybody who's able to speak the language, and then gradually they develop an autonomous interpreting. And in that field, I mean, I, I have an interest in this when I co-edit the series, but there's a, a, a series co-edited by, by myself and, and Michael Kelly on languages at war, which looks at a variety of different war situations, particularly at the role of languages. My last point, though, is, is one that I tried hard to deal with myself, which is sources, because certainly looking at a relatively recent war, like the Second World War, for example, um, the archival positioning of the interpreter in, in, in catalog terms is almost always that of the liminal, the outsider, and the treacherous. So, for example, in the Second World War, you use the British archive, archives of Q, the National Archives, and you look up interpreting things later, they are largely files which are about captured German interpreters and translators, and they are always you know, desperately awful people. Um, so, so the archival positioning is already um, putting us in a particular framework. And I wonder whether you'd have the same difficulties with wars, which are obviously way format, really. I, I'm not familiar with that literature, but I'm glad you're mentioning it because I will look at it absolutely now uh, 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 deeply. Um, uh, they, in terms of interpreters being trustworthy or not, right? I mean, the way I kind of think about it is there's a colonial economy of counterinsurgency or insurgency, right? Where trust is almost kind of a value in this evolving kind of uh, sociology, like the sociological structure of insurgency, right? But there's, in terms of archival positioning, I think the only way to get around that problem is to find, 
you know, uh, the archive from the, the, the colonial or the colonial subject's perspective. And those are so just physically, materially limited. Not totally. So for example, uh, the Philippine uh, government and army, the revolutionary army and government, did have a good percentage of their documents in Spanish and, and local dialects captured by the Americans. And the Americans, you know, while not Orientalists, they're very good at kind of collecting things uh, and, and preserving them. So, so this is all microfilmed at a certain point. And, and you can use all of this. And there are some documents where you have local guerrilla commanders saying, you know what, these guides, these spies, even maybe there's even some references to international law, which I think is the 1899 Hague Convention. They're saying, you know what, these people are essentially spies and they're legitimate targets. If they're not working for us, they're not trustworthy and they could just be summarily executed. Other than that, there's just not a lot, like from the, from the colonial subjects perspective about, about how this economy of trust works. Uh, uh, and, and again, who are they really trustworthy or not? It's, it's just, I think it's, it's fraught with all the questions I think that you're implying. Yeah, um, in terms of archival positioning, um, you know, I, I wish there was an archival position for interpreters in my case. You know, I, they're incredibly hard to track down. Um, especially, you know, I, I chose the 19th century, you know, I'll take uh, credit, like full responsibility for that. Um, but, but what we have for these early decades is just so fragmented. Uh, you know, it's actually very hard. Um, and part of this is that I found a weird absence, a silence when it comes to interpreters. You know, I've gotten to where they'll mention in passing that an interpreter was in the room. You know, presumably he's doing something in there, but there's no record. Um, you know, I've gotten to where I can identify a document and based on the language used, I can tell it's, it's been interpreted, right? That it's, it's in the wrong language, or the second language, I shouldn't say the wrong language. Um, but it's just, you know, occasionally I get a letter that's about something totally else that mentions, you know, an interpreter sent me the wrong direction, you know, like, so there's, um, but really it's, interpreters are both there and not there. They're thought of when they are, right? So like, they're taken for granted. The assumption is that there's an interpreter present and you only hear about, them. it is true, you only hear about them when they're making mistakes, when they're absent. Yeah. Um, you rarely hear praise. You rarely hear, I was so glad to have my interpreter with me. You know, it's so, um, they're very scattered and it's, that is a that's an excellent point that really, now that I'm thinking back, where I see them is mostly in the absence of them and the deficiencies. Yeah rather than as a positive force. Or as a force that can actually shape the, the content. Right. Of the, I mean, there seems to be a lack of any kind of thinking through of the, as yeah. you said, in the Absolutely. <laughs> um, Jessica, you have a question? Sorry. Um, I think it's sort of been answered. I guess like, it was more common, really. Um, I'm just how struck I was by particularly just this paper, but actually this triangle and Alison as well, about the, 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 the very striking difference between what happened at the activities during the war and the activities during the, the post-war occupation mm -hmm. administration and so on. Which is of course quite odd. I mean as someone who's worked on the second world war and what happens at the kind of occupation after the second world war is exactly the same noticeable uh, then. But it's of course quite odd because in many ways in many cases, especially at the beginning of the post-war period, it's the same civil affairs military staff who are kind of doing the occupying and administering. So it's, it's kind of a, a, a vague thought. I, we know from, from some literature that uh, NGOs are, are famous for their kind of presentism, their lack of historical memory. I don't think this is 
quite sense for the army so much that maybe this is something we should kind of put to military historians really. Uh, 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 and to what extent the sources really back that up this huge gulf? Because it's the same people kind of sort of doing similar things, and yet in very different ways as far as languages and interaction with the local sources. Well. Mm -hmm. So it's slightly round. <laughs> Um, there was one question there. Uh, it's actually a suggestion rather than a question. I'm one of those people who hasn't slept all day. I am principally Latin Americanist, and, and there's a lot of um, stuff written on the Spanish imperial project in Latin America, starting with Catherine Burns and Bianca Pignon and Francis Margaret's side of people. Of, I think following up on this thing about the role of the scribe, which is analogous to the role of, in fact, often is the interpreter, um, but shaping the record, the historical record that we have now. And it might just methodologically, I think this for um, Allison might be helpful. Yeah, absolutely. Because your time period is also nice, but <laughs> right. um, it just as a way to think through how to interpret that evidence. Yeah, that's great. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for very rich papers and just this deep dive into the archival sources too. It's always, I mean, the first panel that was also so impressive. I think mine is a kind of a half-baked question and maybe a half-baked comment. So I was left with the impression, I think this really made me think and pause, that the way, especially Jesse's paper discussed language, really points us to the fact that we, and by we, I think I mean academics especially, and I don't even know when that starts exactly, but I don't want to put the date with post-colonial theory, I think it predates that. We tend to think, to theorize language much more, or we're much more eager to theorize language as resistance, or as a kind of resistance, than as a kind of complicity. Um, and I myself am thinking a lot about, well, which is it, and is there a way to weigh one against the other, and how do we determine that, and how does that turn out in historical practice, and in, in the archives, which of course are never written by the same people who are historical participants. But I wonder about what this means about how we talk about language at this conference, because obviously the previous panel spoke to a very simple example as well, where we really hook on, latch onto these examples of, you know, Esperanto, where they, you know, also kind of this binary or sign language, were they pro or were they contra, which ones were they, were constantly negotiating. And I wonder if that's that's okay to keep negotiating or whether it's a kind of line so maybe do you all need to I think that's a great point and a, a, a great uh, question uh, that deserves uh, really serious uh, uh, thought. Uh, one, because I think uh, not only is language seen as inherently liberating, there's assumptions, but internationalism, I think, is seen as inherently liberating. Or in some, and it obviously is in historical, historical context, right? But, but I think of Marcus Auer's book on the UN, right, uh, and the origins of the UN. Uh, internationalism is contradictory, right, in many ways. For, for me, in my project, and trying to think through the, what I'm calling kind of the imperial politics of everyday sovereignty, is, is precisely a critique of, I think, some of the assumptions in post-colonial literature and really heavily nationalist uh, assumptions in a lot of the historical literature on Cuba and the Philippines, and I don't think Cuba and the Philippines are you know, unique in that respect, which, which which tend to look at people who have agency in those contexts as having resistance. I, I look at, you know, like a local elite who's probably never been 20 miles from his 
his you know barrio in the Philippines, and the Spanish were there, and suddenly the Americans show up, and they're, they're armed and you know terrifying, you know, and uh, uh, how do you read that man interpreting for a military in that context as either resistance or accommodation? I think it scrambles those categories, and you have to get to something more sociological, like cooperation mm -hmm. or compliance or something like that, because. Certain peoples, you know, are, are in structure in a relationship between structure and agency, where the structures are very dense and the agency is very thin, right? Or the capacity for those yeah. things. And I just think a lot of those categories of collaborators, right, which are themselves historical products of certain moments, just don't really analytically pay off in the way that for for some actors, for some historical actors, in the way that they do for other actors. Yeah, it's a really interesting question um, that I think thus far, you know, if, if I had to answer resistance or complicity, I don't think I could. I've been thinking about language in a totally different window. I think I think of it principally as a, a tool, right? I'm thinking about it from that aspect that, you know, what really fascinated about me about translation is that, of course, some translations are better than others, and some are really wrong. But there's also this whole communicative space where I can be grammatically incorrect and you can 100% understand me. That we examine interpreters for one set of skills and maybe what they really need is a different set. Um, and so I mean, right, I'm admitting up front, I have, I have not thought through the question of resistance versus complicity, in part because I think that's not the most interesting question to me. I've been much more interested in this weird cooperative or negotiated space of, of the limits of translation, of where it works, how it works. You know, There are consequences, of course, to every translation act. But really, like, thinking of it as a tool, as an acquirable skill, as a, as a thing that evolves with these relationships. And so I think that's a half-baked answer to your question. But <laughs> that's where my brain's at. Um. We, we do have some more time if there are any questions, but they're not mandatory. I have a, a question for Justin, which in some ways I apologize in advance that it might be a bit unfair because it goes beyond your time period. But you mentioned that you thought it was um, a kind of early Cold War invention on the part of the US military to kind of invest in robust training of these types of knowledge workers and training mm -hmm. translators and all the rest. And on one hand, that's shocking. But then if you think about this as not just a story of kind of wartime translation, but also as a story about bureaucracy, it's not shocking at all, right? I mean, you can think, and any one of us in the room can think about uh, just analogies, thinking about our own university administrations, right? Going after some big goal, but not having plans. So the historians in the room know all about this, right? And catching up later. And I think that the earlier um, questioner who, who mentioned that Obviously, people get along, right? And they muddle through. I think that mm -hmm. captures a, a great deal of, the, of, that, of, that, of that question. But I do wonder, this, there's almost a half century between the story that you're telling and the endeavor to actually start investing in robust training. And I like that you emphasized that these were knowledge workers, right? That it took them that long to catch up to the notion that they might want to invest in, in training their own core specialists, and if you just want to, if you just want to. No, that, that's a great, that's a great question, and it, it really gets to histories of the, the state, 
in political development, right? I mean, the, the, the way political scientists or political historians think of the American state, right, is, is, is a rather weak state, rather underdeveloped compared to the kind of Bavarian European model, right, until the 1930s and the 1940s. And you see that definitely in the military as well, right? I mean, like, in the 1930s when I'm sure Hitler is like perfecting tanks or something, right, like, like at Leavenworth, and you know, I'm not a military historian, but I know this anecdotally, at Leavenworth, like they're still on horses, right? I mean, it's, 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 a, it's a very uh, uh, underdeveloped institution, the US military. But the Cold War does change that. World War II and the Cold War does change it in some really interesting ways, mostly with the, the, the national uh, uh, defense bills that come after Sputnik, right, which pours billions of dollars into higher education in the United States. But it hasn't resolved the problem, right? So, so one of the political controversies, which I think is really under-discussed in America right now, is in the context of the new administration's you know, so-called Muslim ban, right? This, this, this immigration order. A lot of Iraqi interpreters for the US military were denied visas that they had already, denied entrance when they had already gotten special visas right, from, from the US State Department under a special visa program, which precisely is supposed to provide an exit for people who are under really severe threats. Some of them are killed, right, in Iraq and also in Afghanistan, right? Uh, so it's not a problem that's been resolved. And instead of, you know, uh, uh, providing those people with protection, right, uh, 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 there's now a kind of, uh, there's a citizenship barrier, right, to them coming in at this point. Uh, uh, and, and, uh, um, and it hasn't been resolved. Uh, the DOD, uh, Department of Defense in the U.S., has a critical languages program, right, where they're poured millions of dollars into Arabic language acquisition, and they still haven't solved the problem, so. So. I was, this is a comment more than anything, but while you were speaking, I just kept thinking, which, which in my mind often, usually only enters my mind in mythical ways, but this Monterey language That's one of, the, one of the programs, right? right. And it, right. it just raises all these questions in terms of, there's, there's this other issue, do you just want your quote-unquote translators to spit out mechanistic things, right. or does the Monterey School try to uh, train on U.S. military to do the interpretive, cultural interpretive work as well? I don't, anyway, right. just, that's and, what I was and that and it also gets into interesting questions of kind of how anthropology has entered recent U.S. counterinsurgency, right? So, so this whole idea of the, the human cultural terrain systems, I mean, really, like as Raphael points out, right, ways to operationalize and instrumentalize language in ways that that don't necessarily have the consequences that are intended uh, by 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 defense planners or thinkers, right? One, um, one, I think, correction to that representation of that history, which is that between the U.S. occupations in Cuba and the Philippines and the Cold War, there's a couple of decades of U.S. occupation of, in Caribbean and Central American countries, and Quantico is filled with these records that are not by trained anthropologists, but by military personnel effectively acting as ethnographers. Some of them, like Dudley Butler, who published that stuff. And you can read these. It's actually a kind of stunning genre of you know, Marines who wrote in this really self-conscious way, wrote about what they were seeing in Haiti or what they were seeing. You know? And I, I think that's part of that knowledge production process. That, and and, and I, it would be interesting to know more about what what Marie in particular was doing to cultivate that because it's a way of seeing that's really, really striking. And um, I think it's part of that yeah, and I, again, I, to be quick, I, you're absolutely right. I mean, there's there's plenty of kind of 
uh, professional academic and kind of amateur anthropologists in the military in this, in this period, right? But I'm, I'm kind of more interested in interpreting as work, right? A kind of labor history of, of empire. Uh, and there's, there's almost nothing written about that uh, in the American context, anyways. Uh, we now have three all of a sudden, so why don't we do it? I just, just a quick talk about There's just one other context which, uh, as you were talking and, and as Bridget was talking, reminded me, of course there's the context of, sort of this, this idea of declinism, uh, of, 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 of making, you know, making an argument for resources based on what your opponents have, um, which is partly the, the, the kind of feeds into the discussion of, of, about what the military actually has as resources, but also when there's an argument that your opponents' armies have these fantastic translators and knowledge uh, at their fingertips, we must do too. This is certainly one of the, the, the contexts of the discussion of anthropology and how uh, anthropologists suddenly became recruited as, as key army workers, as Peter Mandel and those people have written about, um, which I think has to be one of the certain features. Do you want to, Dina and Humphrey, do you want to? Yeah, I just wanted to add kind of to Bridget's comment, like university bureaucracies and uh, bureaucracies in general, mm -hmm. even though once there is that big investment in you are in training you as for example speak Russian, uh, it takes like so long mm -hmm. before they actually, like before kind of the, the American trained Russian speakers uh, materialize. And so you see, and, 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 it, and it is kind of a mystery on what resources do like the embassies and all these sections that are monitoring the Soviets are actually relying. And then like in Alice's case, like sometimes sometimes you understand that there must be translators involved, but they're kind of like invisible there. But then you kind of and then you figure out that someone like with a really posh English name like could not be <laughs> could not have known Russian or very kind of or very unlikely to have known Russian in nineteen forty six. Um, or to the, the, the language school, so there are these like crash courses, kind of Columbia was training like American experts, so they have this like famous course on language to like cram two years of Russian into one year. And so and so people who actually kind of done that course when they when they got on the ground, like they were able, you know, like, to make sense of what you see like in the shops or whatever, but certainly not so certainly again kind of relying a lot on actually saw translators provided by the Soviet state who then snitch onto the KGB to conduct like the very basis, very basic business of understanding you know, the enemy. So there are so many different translations going on and, and Investments that. If I can simply respond, that also goes back to Bridges' point, which is right. I mean, the American. This is a, compa a, his, a, a comparative historical problem, right? The U.S. Empire or not Empire versus other empires, right? It goes to the nature of American power in the world before World War II, right? Which is ideologically at least self-liquidating, right? The it's America doesn't really have an empire. If it is imperial, it's an anti-colonial <laughs> empire, and U.S. interventions and occupations are episodic. They're not truly permanent. They're not. They're not truly durable in the same way, and so they don't develop the kind of Orientalist mm -hmm. knowledge bureaucratic apparatus that you see in other in other cases. It's very pragmatic. It's very immediate. It's very short term and provisional. I think thinking on the part of Americans, anyways. Well, and I would just say very quickly, you know, even in the French 19th century case, I can say, you know, they have this school for Oriental languages that teaches, I mean, it teaches the Quran, it teaches very old Arabic texts, it teaches none of the kind of bureaucratic mundanities. And, you know, they invade in 1830, and I want to say the first, like, 
um, you know, dialectical Arabic class is taught in the 1870s. You know, they eventually start adding, like, you know, government documents, forms, <laughs> correspondence to the, the syllabus, uh, but it's very haphazard and it's just, I mean, the Orientalist community is almost too strong in this case in that it, it drags its heels every step of the way and does not want this. I think they see it, you know, as a dumbing down of their intellectual pursuit. They're just entirely resistant. <laughs> I just want to make one very small observation, namely that, um, that it doesn't matter how much one cultivates linguistic preparedness. Um, when it comes down to it, you're going to improvise. That has to be. Um, if we're dealing with English and Russian, at least there's a fair possibility that there might be um, plenty of, of bi-directional communication between Russians and, and, um, and Americans or Brits or whatever. But, but Pashto, the reality is that you can, prepare, you can prepare for dropping the bomb, but you can't prepare for what happens after that. And so we have this collection of people um, who are, for the most part, without any mm -hmm. formal qualifications, whom we have used, I'm now talking American, um, whom we have used in Afghanistan, mm -hmm. they're used up. They're no use to us anymore. And furthermore, if we bring them to the States, their first language is Pashto. You can't trust Pashto speakers any further than you can throw them. Um, that's essentially the, the, the problem. We don't recognize the nature of um, of military interpretation on the ground. Yeah, I think you're absolutely, and that goes back to how the military thinks of translators as machines, right, in that way. Not as individuals deeply embedded in not only just history, but social context, right, with, with identities that are complex and loyalties that are complex and kinship networks and political networks and, and a whole range of decisions that they have to make, right, that are variable, right, instead of automatic. I'm saving quite a lot of money in the States and less money here is going by the military into some kind of digital communication. So MIT, a lot of money spent on their translator. Right, and Raphael writes about this, and they're, and they're hugely problematic, like for all the obvious reasons. Because well, yeah. you can say it, but you can't understand what's coming out. But um, I was just thinking, actually, when you were talking, that in the UK, the only time that we've had a language policy. Think was after the Cold War when we was sorry after the Second World War when we trained with conscripts British conscripts in Russian and these men were the ones who largely went to found Russian departments in our universities and who were not Russian departments when they were founded. I may say also that I think that this problem of what what kind of status language has in the army is still. A burning problem today, and I don't know what it's like in the American army, but certainly in the Ministry of Defence in, in, in the UK army, it is a career cul-de-sac for you to become a minister, basically. And I've heard that again and again and again. So, you know, that suggests something about how it still seems to be. Final word. <laughs> Final question, and there's one aspect um, that I found interesting is that both presentations, there are interpreters who are part of the army, there are interpreters who are not part of the army. Now, this is also one of the problems that we currently have with what is what happened in Afghanistan and Iraq. I mean, there are some organizations that have really taken up the cause of these interpreters and defending them, etc. But 
the fact is that under IHL, it makes a huge difference whether that interpreter was wearing a uniform, whether they were carrying arms, or whether they were not wearing a uniform mm -hmm. and not carrying arms. And um, so, so I was just wondering whether the interpreters you analyzed were wearing uniforms, were they armed, and mm -hmm. what the implications, I mean, was that taken into account? Because obviously the Geneva Conventions are from after your period, but before, before yours. Yeah, in some cases they definitely were. I mean, all of the military interpreters would have had uniforms. Mm -hmm. um, about half of them are given, you know, a, right, sort of like a, a company horse to use for the rounds. Um, and this is where right interpreters' jobs just boiled over. You know, the, the Arab Bureau was understaffed, which meant you could be an interpreter, but you could also be a secretary, and you could also be sent out to like bring people in for questioning. You just sort of right, it was a do it all sort of thing, and so. Those men, the more active duty, you know, there's a line that's like, how fit is this man for active service? And they're like, oh, he's gotten a little chubby this year, so we need to keep him at his desk. Um, but right, so that they have these times, and yeah, they get in trouble in you know, bar fights sometimes for pulling out a military-grade weapon, you know. Um, we see these, I get these kind of, again, you know, anecdotal evidence. Um, the judicial interpreters are another question. You know, they're fully in the civil administration, um, but I would also argue that they don't have the same clout or respect that the average military member gets. But I think that's a problem that adds to the murkiness of the whole positionality of the interpreter in conflict is that you have them amongst different categories and some are military and some are civilian and it kind of blends into each other yeah. and they're sometimes the same people and that makes it very difficult to say anything in terms of their status, their legal yeah. protection that they should have or should not right. have. Yeah, that's a great court. And they do often, if a military interpreter is sick, they'll go to the you know nearest court and pull the interpreter out for a day. There is absolutely, there's a ton of mixing between these pools. Okay, I think that um, this is a brilliant discussion. Thank you so much, too. Uh,